0: Yeah, just to make sure you're awake, it's good to be together this morning, Uh, and thank you for worshiping with us today. My name, for those of you that I've not had a chance to meet, my name's Kevin Harlan, and like Nathan, serve as part of the pastoral staff, and it's great to be here with you today. And I know this is a big week for some of you, right? Students that are here, this is the beginning of school. School is time to restart school. Now, I don't know maybe how you feel about that, but maybe you're one of those that are ready for school to restart, Maybe you're a little bored, just tired of summer. Look forward to being with friends. Have a you know a teacher that you're looking forward to being in his or her class. I don't know how you sit on that. Maybe you're one of those people. Maybe you're a parent who's just excited for routine to ret- return to your home. So maybe you're excited about school coming in. Um, but for some of you, this week is a week you've been dreading, right? It's you know you, the memories of the tests that you took uh, are still fresh and. You don't want to go back to school. You love the leisure of summer, and this is not a good week for you. Well, I was one of those kids, never looked forward to going back to school. Uh, I love summer. I still do, Um, and I think largely it had to do because the return of school uh, created the introduction for something that I still have a love-hate relationship with, and it's my alarm clock. Anybody relate? I just hate the alarm clock, as Sharon knows. Um, I still remember when my mom first decided that it was time for me to learn how to wake up with an alarm clock, and she was tired of waking me up in the morning. I was 25, and uh, <laughs> you know, I knew you were all thinking, it's like, when did that actually happen, uh, I couldn't remember exactly. I'm thinking it was like 10 to 12, somewhere in that time frame. And she brought this alarm clock into my room, and I thought, this is cool. I've got finally have my own alarm clock. But I did not realize how this thing that I thought was cool entering my room would abruptly end one of my favorite activities, sleeping. Now, don't get me wrong. I love being awake. Uh, And I might even describe myself as a morning person. So if you think that, that's kind of weird, isn't it? Um, I I love being awake before dawn and the quiet hours of the morning. However, I'm not one of those people that just wakes up on my own. And I never, and Sharon can attest to this, I mean never like it when my alarm clock goes off. I, I hate the alarm so much that I've been known in the middle of the night to reset it to change the time when it's going to go off or to, you know, just turn it off completely. And by the way, when you've just awakened from REM sleep, that's not a good time to make decisions on your day. You know, when's the best time to wake up? I I know that from experience. So I've learned to kind of trick myself. I have another alarm that's in the bathroom, (laughs) and uh, for those of you that are, you know, have had early morning meetings with me, the ones that are really important, and I'm not going to tell you who who that is, the ones that are really important that I got to make sure I don't miss, or maybe they're very early where I know I'm more likely to turn it off and think, no, that's not going to happen. Um, I set that second alarm. And really, I just wake up for that second alarm because that will really anger my wife if I don't get up and, you know, get that alarm. And it usually works. Something about the path into the bathroom is usually enough for me to wake up and decide, okay, I need to stay up now. There have been times where I go to the bathroom in the middle of the night and decide to turn that alarm off, (laughs) which is highly problematic. Um, Alarm clocks are designed to wake us up. And that's the purpose of them to startle us, and because of this, they are rarely pleasant or desired at the moment that they go off, but their alarm clock wakes us up for a new day, and although we might experience something really great during that day, we seldom stop to thank the alarm clock for alerting us and waking us up to this new day. Well, for the last seven weeks, and for those of you that have jumped into open here, you've been reading along, for the last seven weeks, we've been looking at the prophets. A group of people that you might describe as their main function is to serve as alarm clocks. I mean, they were sent to wake people up. And because of this, we heard the scripture read this morning by Sandra, their words were often startling and at times just frankly unpleasant. The people who heard them, and even us today, if we listen to them closely, we would prefer to remain asleep. But the words just keep coming, like those multiple alarms that you can't shut off. And this morning, if you've been reading along in the open here, you know we come to a prophet that we've been reading for a few days now. His name is Amos. And here's fair warning for each of you today. You're about to be hit by a loud and startling alarm. I mean, this is not like one of those alarms that slowly builds till it gets loud enough where you finally awake, or, or it's not like the alarm where you wake up to your favorite radio station, or maybe one of those cool Brookstone alarms where you wake up to the voice of your butler telling you, it's time to wake up now. This morning is a blaring buzzer. It's the kind that makes you want to grab your alarm clock and throw it across the room or hit it with a hammer. And unfortunately, although Amos sounds an alarm to the people of Israel, it's really already too late for them. He speaks words that makes it clear that their death is imminent. There's really nothing they can do to prevent it. Their nation will fall. They will be defeated. Their days are numbered. So anytime you come to a point in Scripture like that where it's like already happened, well, why would he even speak these words to the people of Israel? Well, could it be that his words were not primarily intended for them, but for the generations that would follow, those that would read these prophetic words, people just like us? I think we'll find that the alarm that Amos sounds hits very close to home for each of us this morning. And it's an alarm we cannot avoid. The sound of the alarm is the sound of God's heart for justice. And as we will see this heart of justice on display this morning through the prophet Amos, I believe we will see that we can't understand the Christian faith without understanding justice. So if you want to follow along with me... uh, You open your Bibles to Amos chapter 5. I I don't know why you would, would after I've just told you these are really hard words, but go ahead and open up just so you can see for yourself that they're actually there. Now, as you're turning there, let me just give you a little bit of context. The book of Amos is set in a time of great financial health and prosperity in the nation. You might remember God's people are divided into two nations, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And both nations are experiencing a time of peace, of governmental stability, And as a result of this, of great economic health, wealth, prosperity, they are flourishing financially. Their economies are thriving. And many, might we say even most, viewed this financial flourishing as a sign that God is with them, that God has favor on them. And just a further sign that they were God's chosen people. But along comes this guy named Amos, I almost called him Moses, but it's Amos. It's kind of like you read it backwards. No, anyway, it's Amos. In chapter 7, Amos, just to give you a little context of him, uh, Amos describes himself as a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore trees. I don't know if he just had this little side business where he did the tree thing, but mainly he was a shepherd. He does not come from a line of prophets, prophets. And like many who will speak God's truth to the people... Amos wants it to make it clear that he's nothing special, that he's just a messenger from God. And if I was sent to deliver these words that Amos is sent to deliver to God's people, I too would want to make it clear that, hey, hey, it's not me. I mean, I think I'd be something like, okay, I've had a chance to review what God's about to say to you, and I just want you to know, these are not my words, these are his words, okay? I'm just a... Herdsman and a dresser of sycamore trees. This is like what Amos is saying to them. This is God speaking, it's not me. And the very first words of Amos 5 are words that would have been a sound of a blaring alarm to the people. Look with me at verse 1. It says, Hear this word that I take over you, take up over you in lamentation, O house of Israel. Fallen no more to rise is the virgin Israel forsaken on her land, and none to raise her up. Talk about dark poetry. Right here, we've got it. And as we looked at um, a few weeks ago, we looked at lamentations and what a lament is. It's a mournful song, or more specifically, like a funeral dirge. And what Amos is saying to them, I'm about to sing to you your funeral song. And by the way, you don't know it already, but You're dead. You're not going to make it. The verbs here are present tense, not future tense. And the funeral song he will sing for them will tell us that God is pronouncing their death because they failed to understand God's design for justice. And in this pronouncement, I think we'll learn four, four things. That God's heart God's design for justice will help us know God, it will help us know ourself, it will help us understand true faith, and it moves us to action. So let's look at these four together this morning. First, understanding God's design for justice helps us know God. I believe the scripture is clear in this, that if we don't know and understand what the Bible says about the concept of justice, we can't fully understand who God is. And Amos makes this very clear, that God cares for the vulnerable. You see, the economic health of their nation had a dark side. The ruling class were not only neglecting the vulnerable, but they were actually abusing them, padding their own pockets with money from the vulnerable. And God is sick of it. Look at verse, beginning in verse 10. This is a little more obscure, so hang with me here for just a moment. They hate him who reproves in the gate, and they abhor him who speaks the truth. Remember, this is still the funeral song that he's singing. Therefore, because you trample on the poor and you exact taxes of grain from him, you've built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins you who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and turn aside the needy in the gate. Here we begin to see that the pursuit of justice, especially for the most vulnerable, is not only the main point of Amos' book, but at the very heart of who God is. And we won't just see this in the book of Amos, by the way. We saw it in the Psalms, in Psalm 146 in particular, where It was written, he executes justice for the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord loves those who live justly. The Lord watches over the foreigner, the immigrant, and sustains the fatherless and the widow. We've seen it in the prophets. We'll see it in the gospels. We'll read about it in Acts and Romans. We'll read about it in Paul's letters, and it will be impossible for us to miss when we hear from James. God longs for justice. And this is not just the kind of justice that means that you're punished for something that you've done wrong. For example, if someone is found guilty in a court of law, you might say, well, justice was finally served. This is one type of justice. And God, in the end, one day will judge and bring justice for all. But Amos is talking about another type of justice, a justice that is focused on the present day care and protection of the vulnerable, the needy, the oppressed. Do you see the reference to the word gates in verse 10 and there at the end of the passage that we just read? In those times, the gates were a gathering area for the city leaders, the elderly, you might say even like the city council. There were two gates, two doors, and in between was like a covered area, and the elders would hang out there during the day and sort of acted as the place where you would bring a grievance, some problem, something you needed solved, something you needed. It It was the city council or the court of law at the time. But what we see is a systemic injustice. Their legal system is broken. And when justice fails... The poor suffer the most. We see this in verse 12 where we read that the needy are turned aside. And systemic justice often leads to economic injustice. Which is exactly what's happening here. Amos tells us that the city leaders, this sort of city council, were abusing their power and had a bribe system going on. So it was sort of like, if you pay me, then I'll try to work it out to your To your good. He was actually, the city leaders were taking the poor, the needy, the oppressed, the vulnerable, and having them slip them some grain. I don't know if you can actually slip grain, but I thought it was, you know, might make the connection. It was meant to be funny, too, by the way. Um, And you get the idea. The bribe system was happening here at this court of law. Now, here's the crazy thing that. Some of you are going to have a hard time getting your head around this morning. If you read, and you might do this in this upcoming week, you read in 1 Kings chapter 12, we get a picture of what's happening in Israel in Amos' time. And at the very time that Amos is speaking these words, God is speaking these words through Amos. There is a golden calf being worshiped in the temple in Bethel, one of the cities in Israel. And yet... God never speaks of the golden calf through Amos. And very rarely in this words, even mentions the problem with idolatry. His focus is is on how they treat the vulnerable. Now, why is this? I believe that God wants to make it clear to them and to us that how we care for the vulnerable in our society is a spiritual problem. The lack of care for the vulnerable is up, it, it's up there, it's almost equivalent with, or it is equivalent with erecting a golden calf here at the Olathe campus and we worship it on Sunday morning. I mean, we've got a good open space right over there, We maybe we should do that. And God is saying, no, this is as offensive to me as that is. He's not simply interested in us curing what we might think of as the spiritual problems of the vulnerable, but also the social problems, the poverty, the injustice, the suffering of the vulnerable. Now, throughout history, this idea has been hotly debated. And well-meaning Christians have pushed back from this idea of social action Because they've seen it as a slippery slope down to liberal theology, or sort of a, uh, you begin to miss the gospel if you focus too much on social issues. But Amos makes it clear that God sees them as one. Social action and gospel proclamation go hand in hand. There's no difference between idolatry and injustice. God's words through Amos are strong. God sees their abuse, their abuse of the vulnerable, as sin. As a matter of fact, in Amos chapter 2, he even compares their abuse of the vulnerable to adultery. He's interested in a city of justice where even the vulnerable can flourish. I mean, this was the purpose of much of the Old Testament law, to set up a city, to set up a community where the, vul- where the vulnerable would flourish, where everyone would flourish. But it's not happening, and Amos is sent to give them a wake-up call. Now, at this point, I'm thinking that there's some of you that may be thinking one or both of these things. So let me just try them out on you. You might be thinking, I, I knew it. Being rich is... Evil. Wealth destroys things. See, I knew it. Thank goodness I'm not rich. It's, it's those people over there. They need to get it together. I hope they're hearing what Kevin is saying. Or you may be thinking, wait a minute, doesn't God love everyone? Not just the vulnerable, right? I mean, he loves me too. If either of these thoughts are running through your head, You're missing the entire point of Amos. And you're bumping up against the next reality to help us understand justice. That understanding justice helps us know ourselves. Because here's a basic truth that we must all face this morning we are all vulnerable. Yes, some are more vulnerable in this present reality because of their circumstances. But we are all vulnerable, helpless sinners in the eyes of God. And we'll never understand God's heart for the vulnerable until we understand this. Amos drives home this point, beginning in verse 18. And I can't read this with without a certain anger in my voice. So excuse me as I read what I think Amos would be saying to them. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? Anytime you see the word woe in scriptures, I mean, we've now, this is no longer an alarm clock. This is like the smoke detector going off. But this doesn't make, seem to make sense, does it? Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. I mean, wait a minute, aren't, aren't we supposed to desire the coming of the Lord? Isn't that a good thing? Why would desiring it be bad? We see the Israelites had a sort of twisted idea of the coming of the Lord. I think if we're honest with ourselves, many of us do as well. They saw it as their final moment of success. Their enemies would be defeated, those bad people all around them, and they would be the world power from now on. And they thought that their birthright guaranteed them a place of safety and success in this day of judgment. But God wants them to know that they are all vulnerable and needy and that this day for them will be a day of darkness, sadness. Their sins will be in the open. There will be no hope for them. Now, I had to ask myself some questions about this this week. Are there people that on the day of final judgment, I will actually be excited that they are not entering heaven and they are being judged and punished. And if that attitude sits in you, I've got to think that God's not pleased or honored with this. And this is what those people, they're so looking forward to the Assyrians being defeated and crushed. And they're gonna rejoice at God's coming. Now, before we go on, let me just pause for a moment and let's face this truth about ourselves. We are all vulnerable and needy. And if you fail to see this, the day of the Lord will be darkness for you. Now, you know, you may try to evaluate that question and you may express some sort of false sense of humility like, oh, you know, I just need a lot of help and I'm not perfect. But deep down you have this idea that you've got things under control and you don't see yourself as vulnerable. You think you'll be okay on that day of judgment. It's largely based on how good you are and the work that you do and yes, even the way that you treat the vulnerable. I hate to be the one to break this to you, but let me be clear. If you've never heard this before, you are not good enough for the day of judgment. Now, I may not know the particulars about your wrongdoing or your sinfulness, but I know it's there. And on your own, there is no way you can measure up. I don't care how much confidence you have, how many self-esteem courses you've gone to, you won't make it. And until we can all come to grips with this truth, We can't understand the gospel. You see, Jesus did not come for the healthy. He didn't come for those who have it together. He didn't come for those who were able to take care of themselves. He came for the sick, the needy, the desperate, the vulnerable. Which brings us to the third thing that we see in Amos. That understanding justice helps us understand true faith. Look with me at verse 21, where we'll see Amos' words, I think, reach full volume and mine too. Amos says, I hate, it's almost like I hate, no, actually, I despise your feasts. And I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I won't accept them. And the peace offerings of the fattened animals, I won't even look upon them. Take them away from me. The noise of your songs, the melody of your harps, I won't even listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. This last sentence may be familiar to you. It's a popular phrase out of Amos in many ways made popular by Martin Luther King in his I Have a Dream speech. As he spoke these words, he dreamed of a day when justice would roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. And God is telling the Israelites, he's calling them to place their faith and trust in him and making it clear that how they are treating the vulnerable is revealing that they don't really know him. You see, how we care for the poor and the oppressed shows our faith. And if we neglect the vulnerable, God doesn't care how much we come to church. He doesn't care what songs we sing, how loud we sing them, how much money we give, or even if you can play the harp, which would be a very cool instrument to learn to play, by the way. He doesn't even care that. When we do these things and don't care for the vulnerable, it reveals that we're only going through the motions. And we don't really know him. Now, this is not the only place we'll find this idea in Scripture either, by the way. In what may be one of the most haunting passages of the New Testament, in Matthew 25, Jesus speaks of this final day of judgment, the day of the Lord, the picture that he uses in defining the mark of true faith is how we cared for the poor the needy the immigrant the imprisoned now let's be very clear how we treat the vulnerable doesn't save us but it reveals our faith true faith recognizes that we too are poor and needy, and because we've had been extended grace, and because of this truth in our life, our heart is set on doing what is right in the area of justice and how we treat the vulnerable and needy. And we can't help it. This is what the idea that Amos uses. It's like an ever-flowing stream. You can't stop it. It just rolls down like water, which brings us to our final point for the morning. That understanding justice moves us to action. Now, I think this action often moves in a progression. So, let me ask a few questions for us this morning before we depart. First of all, are we aware? Do we even know the systemic and economic injustice that exists in our community? Or are we satisfied in living what some have termed the Johnson County bubble? This is one of the big issues of the day when Amos sounded this alarm. In chapter 6, you'll read that the ruling class was unaware of the problems that were around them. Amos says that they were at ease because they didn't even know or didn't try to know. They were happy living in their bubble. And it may be here that you just don't know what's really, you're just oblivious to it. And Amos is saying, this is not okay. It's not okay for you to continue to be unaware. You're not innocent at that point. So could this be said of us? And because I've had to wrestle with this this week as I've studied this, let me just ask it pointedly to you. Could this be said of you? How about putting down 435 South Magazine for a while and let's understand the issues in our city and read about the city more broadly. Do you know the poverty here in Olathe? Do you understand the poverty in Olathe? Do you understand the vulnerable, the oppressed in this community, in our city more widely? we all know of the struggles of the Kansas City schools. We read about them in the paper. But do we know why this matters? Or how we might be able to step in and help? Earlier this year, I spent some time with Stan Archie, our pastor at our sister church, Christian Fellowship. And I still remember Stan talking about how population, um, or prison population could be projected by third-grade reading levels. And they use this as a projector, a a determinant to determine how many prisons they will need. Third grade reading levels. Sly James in his blog and the City of Kansas City's website recently was talking about the Turn the Page initiative to assist those in the Kansas City schools at reading in a much earlier age. And the Kansas City School District, only 33% of our third graders in the Kansas City School District are reading at a proficient level. 33%. One of the issues the Turn the Page Initiative is trying to address is the reality that 61% of those students have no children's books at home. And this is just one of the many systemic and economic realities in our city. Are you aware of the issues that the vulnerable face? A simple step that we could all take to become more aware is that we've teamed up with a, a group of partners across our city who serve the needs of the vulnerable and the oppressed in our city. How about just finding out some information about them? Go to our website, click on the button serve. You can see our partners, learn about them. Maybe make a visit to go see one of our partners. But as we all know, awareness is a matter of the head and it can't stop there. So let me ask another question. Maybe you're aware, but do you care? Amos tells us that the ruling class was completely self absorbed and did not grieve over the injustice around them. What about us? When we hear stories like this about the Kansas City schools, are we compassionate or judgmental, sort of whispering under our breath, well, that's their own fault? They need to figure that out. Do we long for it to be different or are we just giving up? Sort of saying, "Ah, it'll never change. Now, I wish I could give you some suggestions on how to care, but let's just be honest. This is a matter of the heart. And God is the only one who can do a work on your heart. So I guess one simple step would be pray. Lord, break my heart for what breaks yours. Lord, help me to grieve over the things that you grieve over. And and fair warning on this, by the way. This might be unpleasant. It can be dangerous. Do we care? Finally, let me ask, are we engaged? Are we involved? Are we part of the solution? Because if you truly care... You might say, well, I'm aware, and yes, I care, but I just haven't figured out what to do yet. Let me just say that if you care, you, you can't not be involved. See, you knew I, that's why I didn't like going to school, because you couldn't say things like that. You, you, you can't avoid being involved. God desires that justice would roll down from each of us like an ever-flowing stream. If your heart is broken for the injustice in our city and world, and maybe you're stuck not knowing where to invest, let me just encourage you, invite you to begin with prayer. Don't end there, but start there. Lord, would you, where would you want me to invest my time and energy? Who would you want me to link arms with? Lord, how do I create margin both with the resources of my time and my money, because it will take an adjustment. I have to carve out both of those to be able to attack this issue. Lord, how would you want me to use my vocation where I spend most of my time for the purposes of justice in our city? And as he answers, and he will, by by the way, as God cares for the protection and the care of the vulnerable, And if you're not hearing him, if you're not getting direction, let me just say it's not a matter of him not speaking. It's probably a lack of listening skills on your part. As he responds, though, respond in obedience. Don't sit quietly on the sidelines like you really can't do anything. I mean, surely somebody else would be better. God wants to send you. And as you go, recognize that you're only one part of the solution. God's not asking you to solve the problem, even though I think there's people sitting here in the room who have some ideas and some creativity and an ability to make a dent in some of the issues of injustice in our community. But it's not all about you. We should never be satisfied until justice is done and done completely, but that's a future day coming. And in the process, we need to just embrace the truth that something is better than nothing. Or, as Stephen Garber has coined this term that is very helpful for me, is that we should shoot for proximate justice. We're never going to get completely there. But what does proximate justice look like? Now, for some of you here this morning, you just need to hear keep going. You're doing good work. But might I say, for most of us, Amos's words brings another message, and that is we need to get going. And maybe even, I'm guessing there's some of you here this morning that have been convicted by words like this before. You've intended to take steps of action. But somehow time passes, and you kind of forget about it, and nothing really ever happens. So right now in this moment, if you've got a pen and you're taking notes, let me just, is God whispering to you in any way something, that, a step that you need to take? Write it down for accountability purposes, just to yourself. I mean, even better, could you tell someone, I feel like God is pointing me here. What do you sense that God is asking you to do? How might you be engaged? And if you haven't struggled with the tension of what we should do or how much we should do, let me just say, then you haven't heard the message of Amos. If you're not burdened by the injustice of this community and this world, the mistreatment of the vulnerable, let me make this bold statement. You don't know God because God loves and protects the vulnerable. Understanding justice shows us that we should too. Church, it's time for us to wake up. Let's pray. Lord, we pray this, that you would wake us up. Forgive us for our neglect, collectively, individually, of the vulnerable. Give us eyes to see this neglect, ears to hear their cries for the injustice. Lord, we invite you to work in the dark crevices of our heart and to convict us of our selfish, comfort-seeking ways. Break our hearts for the things that break yours. Give us wisdom to know how to change our lifestyle so that we can invest in works of justice with our time, with our money, Lord, teach us what to cut out. Give us courage to take that first step, reaching out to a new partner, taking the initiative on a new idea, or simply responding to a vulnerable neighbor or coworker. We pray that justice would roll down from us like an ever-flowing stream. We pray this in the name of the one who is unjustly treated on our behalf so that we, as vulnerable, needy sinners, could be set free. Amen.